Welcome to another episode of Health Creators. This is Liv, and I'm joined here today with Hamish Grierson, founder and CEO of Thriva, empowering people to thrive through their healthcare journey. Actually, I thought Thriva existed as a fit-to-fly initially. Oh, really? Um, so so <laughs> then, you, then you were like, it's been seven years. Uh, so obviously it existed before COVID. Certainly did. What was like the original concept behind Thriver? Was it called Thriver in the beginning? Yeah, it's always been uh, it's always been called Thriver, and uh, the name actually says something about what the ambition of the business has always been. And um, effectively, it's to use bio data to enable people to thrive. Hence. Hence Thriver. So you you coined Thrive before it became well what it is today. We wanted it to have a name yeah. that um, yeah. was a little abstract, but without mm. being completely um, disconnected to yeah. the idea. Um, so yeah, Thriver it was. And the genesis of the idea was effectively mm. um, we were surrounded um, myself and my two uh, co-founders, Tom and Elliot, by a couple of very powerful truths. One of which was that in um, places like financial uh, technology and fintech, um, <clears throat> there was a, a rapid rise of businesses that were putting customers at the heart of the solutions and having a very adult-to-adult mm. relationship with them. Um, on the one hand, and on the other, there was this unassailable rise of um, access to information. And what we um, became very passionate about was that that was missing uh, as a um, as a thing to exist in the world with respect to the information inside your bodies. So how do you put those two things together? How do you make uh, your internal uh, biodata easily accessible, um, easy to understand, easy to do something with, and uh, recognize that the direction of travel for for societies in general, is that we're going to need that that information mm. source. So it's about moving from this doctor knows best model, essentially, into one where you come into the room and you have your information that you share. Yeah, I put it slightly differently. I mean, the um, the reality of the NHS, um, obviously, it's a uh, a big. Uh, mm-hmm. and, and dominant force, quite rightly, in the UK, is that it was architected originally to kind of catch people when they got sick and ensure they had um, access to care when that happened. And everyone for 20 years has been talking about sort of preventative and participative health. But in practice, that is just not something that is a, a lived reality for most mm-hmm. people. And the company today... Um, uh, you know, I, I consider myself very fortunate because we've been able to um, create a suite of solutions that, yeah. on the one hand, does power people directly. You know, we do have a D to C brand, um, but on the other, it also powers healthcare partners. Where you know, whether you're a um, you know a GP trying to run diabetes clinics remotely and address health inequalities, or you're a life sciences business trying to create streamlined um, and decentralized clinical trials. Actually, they all have a really common need, which is how do you enable yeah. the people, the patient, the participant, the user, the customer 
to get easy access to that biodata. Um, and it's really difficult, but we've built the, um, the platform that makes mm. that easy to, easy to do. What was that year one like? You had this idea of like, hey, we want to enable people to use their biodata to make better decisions. Okay, like, where do we start? So for context, I, um, I had a six-year-old son. I'd just <laughs> taken a mortgage and I'd just gotten married. So it was like a really bad time to start a business. Yeah. Um, so year one was a bit intense, mm. but it involved um, securing our first uh, little fundraise. Um, and then, I mean, we were incredibly lucky that one of the co-founders was, um, himself just a very, very competent technologist. So he just built yeah. everything mm. and, uh, th there's no two ways about it. It was very experimentation heavy. You know, we were trying to, on the one hand, identify how to position what we were doing to people who, you know, this is back in 2016, mm. diagnostics in the home wasn't really something people thought about. So how do we position it in a way that gets people not just um, appreciative of the of the value, but excited enough to act. Um, and I think, ironically, blow forward seven years, that stood us in really good stead because it's difficult to do that. You've got to create really delightful experiences. Um, and on the other, we were, you know, frantically trying to figure out the ops and logistics flows. Mm. Um, and the the complexity there was um, there are big chunks of um, uh, kind of operational need within the ecosystem that allows you to do testing, but none of them historically um, played nicely with each other. So mm. there was no kind of plug and play network. So we had to go and integrate with a suite of laboratories, um, fulfillment providers. We had to um, you know, think through um, clinical safety and escalation protocols and regulation. And you know, it's a difficult business in that sense. And again, you know, here we are in 2022, our understanding of that ecosystem and how to build a technology wrapper that glues those component parts together is one of the, probably the most powerful um, assets that we have because we can now expose that to yeah. lots of third parties. So it was crazy. Yeah, we were doing like, we were building kits and fulfilling them ourselves and walking up to the old street post office every day. And um, I mean, it was just the three of us doing everything. So it was, it was intense. Yeah. Because you have this array of experiments, essentially, until you reach that product market fit. And um, how many different variations of this do you think you ran until you really felt traction? Do you know, it was funny. We, um, I remember, I've told this story a bunch of times, but I haven't, uh, I haven't told it for a while. Um, we got to about 100 customers. Mm. And I realized one day that I had just completely fallen foul of like the most yeah. basic 101 no-no. And I hadn't, I hadn't spoken to our customers mm. for, for a month or so. And so we pinged an email out. I mean, it's not very hard because you only have 100. And we just asked for time with them on the phone. And I probably spoke to 20 or 30 customers over the course of um, two or three days. Mm. And we really came to understand something, which is that those early adopters were very attached to the idea of building up a longitudinal picture of their health over time. So yeah. we looked at our product offering. We were like, mm, okay, well, it's not, um, it's not saying that. In fact, ironically, we were apologetic about the fact that yeah. 
it was going to be um, continuous and there'd be um, the ability to do that because mm. there's an idea of ongoing commitment about that. So we were, we were apologetic. And we, mm. having uh, had those phone calls, flipped the way that we were positioning and put subscription and the idea of regularity even though the individual will control the cadence and the doctor will inform you as to what the cadence needs to be. And it started to take off. And we started seeing, you know, 100% daily improvement on sort of Facebook um, mm. uh, engagement and conversion. But there was a lot of testing that just yeah. didn't work. How long did it take you to reach that point of product market fit and how did you know like what did it feel like yeah um i think there have been different stages where we've sort of we've had it and it's been i think that early sort of mm. um jump of customers where um you know retention was was looking pretty solid and um our CACs were starting to become predictable and and then i think you know we probably went through the early adopter market and well, through the, a phase of acquiring in the early adopter market. And that felt pretty clearly like yeah. product market fit. Um, MPS was very high. You know, retention rates, as I say, were, were, were pretty stable. But then I think we actually lost it again as we sort of started mm. to jump into the mass market. And we started recognizing that the positioning that had been working for some of the people who were early adopters yeah. wasn't going to get us into the, in, in, into the mainstay. Um. So that for me was, was certainly a, you know, a point of, okay, we need to think about positioning again, which, which we did do. And then interestingly on the B2B side where we power third party partners uh, across the, across the healthcare system, um, product market fit, you know, we're still relatively early on that side actually, but product market fit for me is how much do you get inbound and how, mm. how quickly do you convert them? Um, because the thing that we've got really solves the problem that they've got and that, that feels like where we're at now. It's amazing um, to think we really haven't um, we haven't we haven't had much marketing resource mm. on the B two B side, but we've had you know I think a um, you know a pretty healthy amount of success in a short period of time, which for me suggests that there is a market and they do need the thing that we're selling. Um, so that does feel like product market fit, but. You know, ask me again in six months and hopefully I'll be able to confirm that that was the case. How many years until you reach that point of like, we're getting this like, would you describe it as like an avalanche, avalanche of like growth? I think, um, I don't think we've experienced that in the direct to consumer business. And in fact, mm. I don't know anyone um, who is who is monetizing a um a business in our space who, who's mm. gone th through a sort of total J curve um, and and continued it. Um, though there are businesses that are adjacent that have experienced that, I don't think in the diagnostics yeah. landscape, parking COVID, um, where testing obviously was was on the rise for a very different reason. Mm. Um, I don't think businesses tend to have done that. And part of that is just education. You know, the market yeah. is still relatively early and sort of waking up to the value of, of understanding what can be understood about mm. your, your own body. Um, and then on the, so I think that's, that's emerging. I don't think we've had that avalanche, uh, that avalanche moment. Um, 
we certainly did experience an avalanche moment when um, we sort of positioned what we were able to deliver mm. uh, in the B2B space because we ended up powering lots of um, antibody testing w- mm. within the UK system um, and making sure that the government had a data set that they could rely on uh, to be able to understand the, the, the sort of risk profile of different groups. So that that was certainly a, an avalanche moment. And I think the, you know, B2B, the kind of solutions that we're building, yeah. um, they're not... Um, sort of classic B2B SaaS products where you've got a massive addressable audience mm. and the ticket value is relatively low. It's it's more enterprise level. Yeah. Um, so, you know, it's more, you know, an avalanche is often lots of very small rocks. I think mm-hmm. ours feels like a um, lots of big rocks lots dropping. Big which rocks. Maybe doesn't feel like an avalanche quite. But did you do direct to consumer during covid we continued to do it, yeah. yes. Um, yeah. We didn't. We chose not to invest as um, mm. as heavily around direct to consumer COVID testing. We did yeah. do it primarily because we wanted to make it available to our existing customers, um, and instead we focused on uh, capturing what we thought was a transformative moment in healthcare. And I still think that that's true, yeah. which is as healthcare moves to the home. Diagnostics has to be a part of that. Um, how do we do that? Because at the moment, you know, the system isn't designed to, to make that make that easy. And we built up this really strong, um, both technology, but also um, experience mm. base that meant we could start to, you know, bring providers, telemedicine providers, startups who've got, um, uh, you know, innovative products that need diagnostic solutions pharmacy, um, insurance, life sciences, research, um, and the NHS themselves. You know, we, we do power NHS uh, hospitals and some, we do some work with um, uh, GPs as well. So we invested much more heavily in that. Um, and we continue to because I think it's, um, it's a very exciting uh, macro shift you know, for, for, yeah. our, for our generation. I think it's going to be, we'll yeah. look back on this in, in 10 years' time as profound. And was it profound for your team when you saw all of this happening, right? You were like, I've been trying to get people on daily testing for the last like <laughs> five years, right? And then, and then everyone just started doing it. Yeah. I mean, it's, um, yes, it was pretty profound. I mean, it was also, it was also pretty intense because we were doing yeah. something where, you know, we were scaling up into the millions mm. from a handful of thousands. Um, which just carried the most um, uh, f- phenomenal intensity with it because we, you know, we kind of forget now, but it was wartime. You know, we were, yeah. we were on this uh, attack footing to, to, to do whatever we could. Whoever, yeah. whoever you were, everyone was trying to do their bit, um, as were we. You know, I remember um, uh, uh, taking a proposal to, to number 10, effectively saying, look, whether you use this or whether we don't, here's the, here's the playbook for what you can do mm. with this stuff. Um, and as it turned out, we ended up then doing some doing some work with the government. But um, equally, the teams were just people, and all the people were suddenly having to grapple with remote working and yeah. onboarding people um, uh, in a decentralized environment, and themselves being worried about COVID, and you know our lab partners being the people processing samples mm. where they were really worried about COVID. You know, so it was a it was an intense time. It was not. Um, it was not easy, 
And whilst I think that there are genuinely positive consequences of COVID for the health ecosystem or healthcare ecosystem, it's you know it's come at a high price. You know, both at a at a at a sort of local individual level, lots of people died. Yeah. Um, and the people who I think have gone gone through it, I think, are still processing it. Do you mean with long COVID? And, I, I, yeah. I mean both. I think mm. that you know we've. It's the first. Um, I think it's the first global event yeah. of its kind, certainly for uh, my generation and below. I think, um, and I think people are are still kind of grappling with it psychologically, mm. and there are hundreds of millions of people who are grappling with it physiologically, as you say, yeah. whether it's long COVID or um, or something similar. Interesting. Um, so you were testing thousands, say, pre-COVID and then during COVID, scaled up to testing millions in the UK. Uh, what was like the biggest challenge of doing that? Yeah. So I think it was... Um, it was, what was the biggest challenge? It was probably being a, so we were the only, I think this is true globally, we were the only end-to-end solution provider. So um, th- there were you know, governments and private companies who would do pieces of the value chain, but we, um, through the platform, stitched together mm. all of the pieces. But we aren't, um, at least not now, vertically integrated. So we were working with a suite of lab suppliers and a suite of um, mm. fulfillment providers and um, you know people who actually provide the stuff that goes into the kits that you then send out the door. Um, distribution partners, yeah. Royal Mail, um, the delivery group and folks like that. And everyone was trying to do the same thing, which was to scale up. Yeah. And on the one hand, you had a... Um, uh, just this phenomenal incentive mm. to make it work because if we could make it work, um, we would do something powerful uh, that would have a really positive impact. Um, so it was, you know, everyone really wanted to, to, yeah. to get there, but no one had done this before. So mm. you're dealing with a, a supply chain who uh, we've glued together, but themselves are going through sort of pretty radical uh, change in, uh, and scale up. And that was, that was, you know, pretty intense. And it required a lot of very sensitive management because, yeah. you know, these are businesses who are dealing with risk on the one hand, um, complexity, uh, uh, you know, they're trying to judge the balance of not over-investing but not under-investing, um, what's going to be here to stay that lives beyond COVID, yeah. what isn't. Um, and here we are, the piece in the middle that centralizes all of that. And, mm. um, uh, you know, entirely appreciably, those partners were um, trying to find their way, as we were. Um, but that was, that was complex. And when did you think, okay, we have to switch our resources now, right? Because you built up all these resources around COVID. And then at what point in that timeline, in that journey from us being in like, whatever, the second lockdown to to normalization, where you like, we've got to change, like, we've got to 
turn this tap off and turn this one on now. Yeah. So I think it was probably almost exactly, uh, probably almost exactly, it's a terrible sentence. Uh, it was almost exactly a year from um, mm. the pandemic landing. So we went through, uh, you know, March, April, uh, okay, this is not going away, mm. into lateral flow testing isn't working, then the sort of um, working with the government to yeah. sort of bottom out what the solution could look like and then turning it on. And that turn on um, happened in um, sort of Q, uh, Q3, Q 4. So I think it was probably five months of, of just getting that program to become stable enough. Mm. Um, and the team were amazing. I mean, absolutely mm. amazing. And it was a program that, you know, again, everyone's yeah. figuring out the whole thing um, as, as new information comes yeah. up or new technology comes through. Um, and, and just to be clear, I mean, the, the, the Department of Health themselves were amazing. Yeah. Um, and the people working with them were, were you know, they were, they were doing incredible work. Um, so by that, I suppose, the anniversary of the pandemic landing, um, one year in, we were sitting down looking at the, the long-term trajectory here, and it was becoming very, very clear that healthcare was um, experiencing this shift. We were seeing, um, you know, as a good sort of litmus test, the amount of telemedicine mm. suddenly just jumped probably yeah. 80%. Um, and whilst that was clearly not going to stay there, there was a recognition that technology could be adopted. It had... Mm a really valuable place in certain use cases. Um, we had to get healthcare as a model into people's hands at home or the community. Clearly, not everywhere um, and not for every use case or disease area, but we were just seeing that it could happen yeah. and clinicians were just doing it. Um, and our, our view became, we now have to capitalize on the, what was then six years worth of experience that we we built up because we thought we could have a really, really um, profound positive impact yeah. um, if we invested in um, turning everything that we'd built into a platform that third parties could plug into, mm. knowing also that we would be able to borrow from our direct-to-consumer um, technology and experience as well. Yeah. Um, because sometimes... Um, it will be true that you need to figure out how to engage people and mm. you need to figure out how to present information back to them and you need to know how to think about um, safety and security and um, what you can and can't automate to keep costs down and quality up. Um, yeah, so we felt like that was the time. So it's probably a year in. Like March 21? Thereabouts, yeah. Yeah, and what was the first kind of post-COVID use case? So it was... Ironically, um, it was an extension of mm. something that had started pre-COVID. Mm. And there was a really pioneering um, uh, operator at a hospital in southwest London at the Royal Brompton, um, uh, a wonderful man who, who uh, uh, had a specialist area in cystic fibrosis. And he'd contacted us in, uh, I think it was 2018, maybe even earlier than that, and sort of said, look, we've got this group of patients who we would like to keep at home if we can because they have a, uh, a compromised um, uh, immunity and putting them into a phlebotomy clinic in a hospital exposes them to risk that we would like to, yeah. to, 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 to alleviate. 
So we'd been working with that one hospital and um, uh, with a group of patients empowering them to, to test at home. And that expanded from one to four hospitals within a really short space of time. Yeah. Um, and that then jumped into another, uh, another area um, where there was an appetite to do pulmonary hypertension testing mm. at home and we had to do some validation work. Um, so the sort of the, um, the click across from that one condition area into, uh, into others and diabetes followed that fairly soon after. Um, and I think the, the use case after that was um, research in life sciences. Mm. So the, you know, the, the truth of the matter, I think, is that we're sitting at, that's why this conversation with you is so interesting, um, we're sitting at a, a fascinating point in time where our ability to collect data at scale yeah. is unprecedented. And we've got the computational power to actually divine some really quite um, that meaningful insights from it and to connect that back into a whole slew of different applications, whether it's um, the way you find you, you yeah. know, drug usage or digital therapeutic pro There's a whole amazing slew of things that come with that. And um, we now work um, as a preferred supplier with a, a really big mm. CRO who themselves, I think, just see the value of where that will go over time. Um, so that was another big use case. And then they sort of, yeah, they sort of filed in after that. Could Thriver become a digital twin model? <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, it's, I think our place will be, I th so I think there's a really, so this is around the houses way of answering your question, Liv, mm. but I think there's a really um, fascinating coming together of B2C and B2B mm. in, in our business, but I think it'll happen in others too, where the data that we're collecting yeah. in the direct-to-consumer context will have value for the people th that are um, the owners of that data. And I think that th those individuals, if given the appropriate uh, choice and, and empowered to make an informed decision, yeah. may be able to extract value from that data by working with third-party partners. Because mm. actually, you know, how good we get at personalization, you know, obviously a bit of yeah. a buzzword, but um, what is personalization going to be governed by? It's going to be governed by understanding more about individuals. Um, now, what data sets we collect today versus what we'll be able to collect in um, you know, 12, 18, 24 months time will continue to expand. So to your question on digital twin, um, mm. I think that there will be a number of providers, not one, that will need to feed into the idea of a digital twin. Um, would we like to get there? Yeah, probably. But, you know, I think we've got a, enough to do to contend with the complexity of the current opportunity before going entirely into that space. Yeah, I guess where I saw the opportunity was it's not necessarily the collection that's useful. I think a huge number of data is being collected on us today already, but um, it's the combination and the analysis. Sure. Right? Because yeah, I agree with that. Um, it's, it's the interface because data is not inherently useful if you're just looking at it. It's, it's more like how do these different factors actually impact me? Yeah, quite right. And we find, um, and again, this is some of what I was alluding to um, with respect to using our B2C heritage with, yeah. with, with B2B partners in, health, in healthcare. We've figured out how to turn a 
uh, you know, frankly, completely unintelligible uh, data set from uh, a, you know a lab result of some mm. kind into a meaningful. I can actually pick this up and know what to do with it, delivered responsibly, so you're not spooking people um, and creating um, inappropriate concern. That's not that easy to do, and the yeah. so what of a diagnostic is always going to be the most important thing. As you say, the information in isolation is only is only ever going to be so useful. So, yeah, and we you know we've been doing that on the on the B two C side of the business for for many years, and how you advance the science I think is also fascinating. So we've mm. got um, in the way that we present result data as an example. Um, optimal ranges not just standard lab ranges and it's those sorts of things where um we've got the data and it's proprietary um because we've been able to collect it from our um on behalf of our customers and you know we can use it anonymously to build predictive models so you don't even need to take a test but we can say look you answer these questions and we'll be able to have a fairly decent sense of um in fact it's with a 95 percent degree of accuracy so it's Mm. a very decent sense of you know where you may be from a testing perspective. Yeah. Um, so yeah, use of the data is um, is for sure a huge value add. It's just what will be the first really yeah. really transformative use cases. I think is still being determined. How do you deal with the risk factor in terms of hey, we identified a biomarker that could mean that you have Alzheimer's, but we aren't, you know legally allowed to say that you have it is there is there a component of that yeah there is for sure and look i think the um there was an article in the bmj recently that 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 shone a light on some of this and there's a um a reality to the fact that if you wanted to just put lab testing in the hands of the consumer Mm. you could do that um i personally believe that that's wholly inappropriate to to not think through exactly the sort of use cases that you're talking about. Um, The way that we approach it is by, first of all, thinking through that question and um, trying to make it very clear that when we take a test on for an individual, that it's an appropriate test to be running for them. Mm. And also the the way we'll present the information back, it's been reviewed by a a GP. Yeah. I mean, in the DTC context, that happens all the time. We explain as best as we possibly can, what a test can't tell you. Um, and we therefore make sure when the result information comes back, um, it is responsibly delivered. So it doesn't do that thing of saying, um, here's something that you either can't do anything about and doesn't make any sense and it may worry you. Uh, and at the other, um, if we do find something that is concerning, um, we have a... Um, Someone a you can of, call. Yeah, a sort of ranking system yeah. of, we will go all the way up to working with the emergency services to contact mm. you. So there's a, it, it's patient safety. I mean, that's, that's yeah. the sort of the, the, the category of, uh, of process here. Um, we have an army of clinicians who are wonderful and think very carefully about and that are, stuff. Are they linked to the NHS? Because when you tell me this, I'm thinking, how do you even get time from these clinicians, right? Because I'm guessing yeah. as like a patient, you maybe get a result and you're like, okay, now I want to see a clinician about it. Call up the NHS and they'll be like, okay, our first available appointment is in like three months. Yeah. So, I mean, 
there's it depends on the mm. on the use case. If it's a B two B customer, mm. um, if it's you know us doing testing for the NHS, that's all within their own ecosystem mm-hmm. anyway. So I yeah. think that problem exists much less there. And the same thing where we're powering a third party who themselves mm. are a solution provider of yeah. any kind. Um, in the B two C context, when we do suggest that someone um, picks it up with their GP because we found something that is worrying, yeah. um, you're right. You know that's something that. First of all, we try to do as little of as we can do, recognizing that um, the only time we should do it is where we have a, a real reason to believe that someone's picked something up that is um, a concern. And right now, that is potentially causing a problem because mm. the access is challenged. So we are doing some work, actually, fun enough, right now yeah. to look at ourselves being able to provide access to that specialism. It's it's a private solution in mm. the sense that it's not then um, uh, linking back into the NHS. Uh, and look, ultimately, I think that the uh, the optimal solution is 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 a hybrid one where mm. you have both, because there yeah. will be people who either can't or don't want to pay for a service like that, and or at least don't want to pay in addition to their um, to their taxes. So I think you have to be able to say, you know, in the fullness of time, you've got options. You could. Um, you could speak to someone maybe over a, yeah. a telemedicine consultation, or you may want to go and speak to your mm-hmm. your doctor. Interesting. Um, I don't know if this is like a debate within the industry or like micro industry, but what do you think when people say that Thriva is not really a remote solution because you still need healthcare professionals who facilitate the tests? So just to be... Um, really specific on our model. So the um, there's no uh, physician approval mm. in the B2C context yeah. when you order it. That's different regulatorily uh, in the States that is required. Our physicians do um, play a part in the review of results and commentary mm. on results. Um, so I think there's... But it's not self-collection now, is it? Uh, so the samples are mm. self-collected. So there is no physician. I see. But it's just that you have to send it to a lab still. That's yeah. correct. Yeah. So the mm. um, so the, the business actually today is mm-hmm. omni-channel. We have kits that we can send out that arrive through your door. You do the whole thing by yourself. Sample goes back to a laboratory. Then you post it. We can also send a nurse out mm-hmm. um, anywhere in the UK with a partner. Um, and we have the first stages of a drop-in network where you can go on the high street and someone will do nice. a, a venous draw for you. Yeah. So, again, you know, is there a silver bullet here that just makes the whole thing um, uh, very predictable and straightforward? No. Yeah. The, the solution will very likely for the next two, three, four years be omnichannel. And mm. all it uh, really is requiring of is careful thought about what's the right um, collection modality for a particular use case. So, you know, if you're in clinical trials and you want to do screening, yeah. actually screening can be really difficult, very expensive. If you're trying to find a very specific population who say have um, a particular lipids profile or, um, you know, it's a, a, a vitamin D reading in a particular season or, I mean, just keep going, right? Things that we otherwise probably don't have on people. Well, with a self-collection kit, you could um, collect a substantially larger amount of data by posting people kits that they can do themselves. There's no uh, rate-limiting factor mm. from a clinician perspective in that sense um, and may completely change the way that screening can happen. 
Um, but then there are use cases where you're running a clinical trial. Just follow the example where yeah. you've got a really, really specific, um, you know, highly, highly sensitive mm. drug being administered, let's say, to a child where mm. there is still a diagnostic need. Is that appropriate for, for them to do at home? Absolutely not. You know, you're still going to want to have a much more white glove concierge service supporting that. Um, probably analogous to what happens today. Yeah. From my perspective, it's maybe the accuracy component, right? So when you were talking about Thriva needed to step in to support COVID because lateral flow testing, a lot of false <laughs> positives and false negatives. So I guess it's that component of, hey, we have a 95% degree of accuracy that is required um, in some Yeah, that's cases. right. And so we yeah. are, um, if you think about the value chain, so we integrate with UCAS accredited laboratories. So the, mm -hmm. the, the testing that they provide us with, they will be able to provide the NHS with. Mm. Um, the additional layer that we've um, uh, been working through over the course of the last 12 months is actually building up a proprietary data set on our side um, in addition to any data that the labs yeah. have because actually we'd like to be able to uh, cut it according to different um, statistical frameworks so that we can yeah. see, you know, are there different applications um, that, that make sense here depending on, you know, how good or bad the data is for a particular analyte. Um, and look, the, um, the reality is that if you do something at home uh, mm. or you're, you're looking at the, um, the prism of what can be done at home, there is absolutely a truth that not 100% of tests will be suitable for self-collection at home. Yeah. It's a very um, it's a very broad range that are, but there just there will be some that are not well suited to it. So you just have to understand what those thresholds are, and as a consequence, be able to um, put a solution in front of people that allows for that to be the case. So okay, um, this needs to be done as a as a venipuncture, and it mm. needs to be stabilized straight away with a centrifuge. Okay, what does that mean? Well, you need to either have someone going to the house with a centrifuge. Uh, machine in the van outside or they need to be in a hospital environment or um, mm. you know it's just not the same solution and that's okay um, so it's just you know as straightforward takes time to build but it's as straightforward as saying what does the data tell you what's robust what therefore can you um, uh, bring to um, uh, uh, solutions as a self-collection versus yeah. needing assistance what are the time parameters in terms of uh, stability and uh, and putting those as a as a as a rules engine into the business. Yeah, I mean, I see kind of two different channels you can go down, or two different methods, right? So the initial is almost like the the pre-screen test, right, um, to reduce screen failure rates. So you would say, hey, let's just build a low fidelity test that gives us. Uh, less accuracy, but we can screen out anyone who's definitely not eligible for the study. And then the second one would be, hey, we have a number of individuals who regularly use Thriva to check their health. We have already done the analysis and understand the different biomarkers um, involved and risk factors involved in these individuals. Um, we can get these individuals involved in the clinical trial and then bypass the pre-screening. Yeah, exactly. Mm. And that's, I think, the first use case of bringing together B2C mm. and B2B because, mm. um, the, you know, there's quite rightly some um, 
some sort of moral and ethical questions that need to be addressed in in how consumer data would be used yes. in, in any of those contexts. Yeah. But I think it's just about choice, right? And, and mm. having an adult to adult conversation with people to say, if you opt into something like this, this is what it will mean for you. And this is what it may contribute to. And a model that hasn't been explored successfully yet is how might we share the upside mm. with the consumer if it's the B2C context? Yeah. Um, if indeed there is upside being being created, I think it's a it's a it's a really fair question to ask. And look, 23andMe have done a, mm. I think, a very credible job of proving that um, you can deliver a good service to a customer and equally build up data that has value. Um, to, to a third party that yeah. I think really advances the science. And if you look at, um, obviously, 23andMe have done some um, uh, relationship building with GSK. Mm. A lot of, if you read the GSK annual report, there's a huge amount of 23andMe's data set referenced there. So it, you know, it clearly has, it has value and we hope will be um, a key driver of better, personalized, more effective, um, you know, less harmful drugs in this particular context. Um, I'm particularly fascinated by mm. not just drug development, but the, the broader area of um, trials to find solutions that may not just be drugs. Yeah. Um, and I think our data set will have a, uh, have a really meaningful role uh, to play there. You mean in medical devices, DTX? Yeah, and it, I mean, it's, um, it's a very broad playing field. Mm. But I mean, you and I started this conversation talking about intermittent yeah. fasting, right? We did, yeah. Um, <laughs> so... Where does that go? Mm. What is that? It's not a medical device, clearly, because you just mm. don't eat. W- what does the research suggest around that as a protocol? Um, yeah. You know, are there, um, uh, are there uh, stress-relieving uh, protocols that mm. may or may not involve the drug, may or may not involve a drug and a digital therapeutic may yeah. or may not involve a drug or digital therapeutic and a combination of that plus some, you know something else. So I believe that industry is, is, is waking up and it's fascinating and I'd love to play a part in it. Um, but it's not it's not to my mind anyway um, just about um, diagnostics. Interesting. And how much advice does Thriver give? Right, because. Like you guys could easily become a DTX as well, right? So you have all these yeah. people, they come and they get their results every month. To what extent could you not just be like, hey, uh, why don't you like sleep a little bit more every night and maybe this this number will drop or maybe this number will increase and then suddenly you become a DTX, right? Yeah. So we, we actually do do that now, mm. um, but we do it deliberately um, uh, under the auspices of lifestyle advice. Yeah. So there is a um, there is a sort of uh, a, a category where it's permissible to habituation to, versus basically. Yeah. What you're not treatment. saying is yeah. um, we've diagnosed this and this is how we're going to treat it. Mm. Now, interestingly, as a business, we're moving into wanting to do that because we now see that there is an appropriate um, context in which actually doing that is just better for the customer, or better for yeah. the patient, or better for the um, for the participant. And some of that dovetails to your earlier question, why would mm. we do that? Well, if we can be the provider of the solution yeah. and alleviate some of the pressure from the NHS, providing people are willing to support that, from our perspective, that's absolutely right. Like We should be able to give people that choice. Um, so we're stepping into that. But historically, though, we've been able to produce good insights mm. around 
exactly what you described. These are the things that are clinically evidenced yeah. to have a potential impact that would improve your results. And we've pushed the envelope quite far there. So yeah. if there is clinical substantiated evidence that proves that mindfulness and meditation is a risk mitigant to your cholesterol levels, we will surface that to people. Now, what we haven't said is you've got a diagnosed X mm. and therefore treatment of Y um, yeah. because we haven't needed to do that to add value. But as I say, fullness of time, we're sort of treading into that area carefully mm. um, because it is it is complex and you have to have patient safety at the forefront of your considerations. But um, it is interesting. Yeah. I mean, there's so many different routes you can take with this. So it's interesting because I guess is the ultimate goal that we create a system where everyone becomes like a regular screener, essentially. Like it just becomes part of your daily lifestyle. You know, I wake up in the morning, I check my phone and then I screen to make sure that I'm, you know, yeah. catching anything I can. Right. Yeah. I, um, I think there's a really dystopian version of the future and a, and a really utopian version of the future. And mm. look, I, um, I, you know, I have the great privilege to run a technology company, but mm. I don't spend much time on social media. Yeah. And I draw that analog because I think there is absolutely a risk of over-testing um, mm. or uh, uh, over-insighting, if I can call it that. Over-insight. Um, I think we've got a, a ways to go before that becomes a, a, mm -hmm. a real problem on a, on a generalized basis. But if you, if you sort of push that into what I think is a more utopian view, which may be yeah, you're going to get some stuff that's read out, you know, every half second from your wearables. Mm. And eventually we might have um, sensors that sit um, inside the body constantly. Neuralink. <laughs> Maybe Neuralink. <laughs> um, some form of bio nanotech yeah. that, will, that will give us some, some readouts. Mm. And we're 25% we're of the way there. You know, we've got um, mm. Freestyle Libre technology that um, gives us continuous glucose readouts. It's just that it doesn't last for very long. And, um, mm. uh, you know, we're not full cyborgs just yet. So just to round out, I think there is a, a data set that will be dynamic and coming at you pretty, uh, pretty live and will be really, really powerful. I mm. don't think you need to be doing the kind of testing that we do yeah. on a daily basis. I think that would be wrong on a, on a generalized basis. But I do think that um, much more uh, ready access mm. to the kinds of testing that will have a transformative effect on you is is coming and I think will be really, really powerful and really positive for people. So, um, you know, I've got three kids and we were talking about the amount of germs that pass back and forth. Yeah. Uh, there is no ready access to the no. technology that informs whether you should be taking um, uh, your child down the path of um, uh, a drug or not, right? Here is a... Um, I see. Yeah. Uh, uh, you know, a drug that might contribute to antimicrobial resistance, but how much confidence do you have as a, mm. as a clinician or as a parent to, to make that choice? Um, that, you know, it's very basic, but just understanding that alone, would, I think be, be, be really powerful. Um, where is my, where is my biology today? I think is a, is a question that lots of people will grow up appreciating. We will, um, you know, we'll know a lot more about, um, but we do have to be careful not to make people um, 
exist through the prism of testing alone because that, that feels very dystopian. Well, because we create a world of like web MD warriors essentially. Yeah, and look, I think that yeah. actually sort of plays into the dystopian view, right? Mm. Which is um, too much information and not mm. enough um, and not enough actionable um, sort of stress-free uh, direction. Yeah. Um, and I do think the industry has to be very careful not to not to go there. But I think we're at sort of one percent. I think the risk shows up at seventy-five percent yeah. of, of this stuff coming to fruition. We've got a very, very long way to go before most people, just on a general basis, have any idea what's happening inside their bodies. Yeah. You know, we've got a, um, a, a national health check program in the UK that kicks in at the age of 45, and national take-up rates oscillate between 10 and 25, 30%. So even the thing that we do have that's designed to be sort of participative and preventative, yeah. you know, maybe isn't doing um, quite what it could. Yeah, I know this is going full circle now, but does that mean like the initial people that use Thriva were maybe a little bit more hypochondriac? And like, if testing kind of creates this like worry and frustration, did you get like also interesting calls from people about? Do you know it's interesting? I um, yeah. I I think we probably did have some people who were um, who were sort of self styled. Uh, hypochondriacs and I, I had a couple of phone calls in that early 100 of, of people who would talk about that and actually what was really interesting is that it contributed to um, nullifying their concerns because they could okay. prove to themselves yeah. that I'm fine that things were yeah. okay yeah and actually maintaining that view even if they then decided to you know as I always say um, eat burgers and uh, and drink beer. They did so knowledgeably. Like they mm. would, they knew where they where they were for some of the the, the sort of um, uh, key risk determinants. Um, but also there was a huge number of people, and I think that group is much much bigger now than it was in yeah. twenty sixteen, where they simply understand the value of yeah. building a longitudinal picture of their health. Yeah. Full stop. And that's nothing to do with being more concerned than they should be mm. um it's just mm. uh, uh, you know them taking a pretty logical view that my health is my problem and i'm going to do what i can to understand what's true for me and then make some decisions on the back of that and i think the the future is is is, is a positive one as a consequence yeah. of that. you know people are starting to appreciate that that's a a thing to be encouraged and supported right we shouldn't we shouldn't be trying to to do that down so your goal with Thriva is not to create this dystopian... Gattaca. Yeah. <laughs> no, um, no, very much not, Liv. I mean, I, I, think, um, yeah. I think businesses mm. in, in any of the adjacent spaces to the ones we play in have to keep a really, really um, firm handle on mm. that risk. Um, you know, are we testing the right people in the right way, responsibly, you know, very high clinical... Um, uh, a, a very high degree of clinical input. I think if you do that and then you do it responsibly, you can um, you can mitigate that as a reality for sure. Um, but it's it is a risk, you know. It's one of those things that I think any industry. And I, I reference social media because I think yeah. the problem with social is that it was adopted with no handbrakes. There was mm. no there was no stopping to say. I wonder how this is going to affect teenage uh, depression and yeah. anxiety. And we're at a point now where I don't I don't know how we'd put a handbrake on that. Yeah. 
Um, so I think, yeah, we, we owe it to ourselves to, to not fall foul of the same thing and make and sure diagnostics. Well, yeah, I'd, I'd put it as sort of um, as, as mm. health data. I think health it's broad, broader yeah. than just diagnostics. I think that plays a part. But, um, mm. you know, I'm sure Aura Ring have people who are a bit too addicted to the data. And, mm. you know, you hear stories about people who use sleep tracking devices who sleep worse as a consequence of yeah. the stress about the data they might get the next day if they haven't slept well and therefore they don't <laughs> sleep well. So there's this, you know... Um, you're biasing the results essentially. Yeah, yeah. correct. You're, you're mm. not achieving the thing that you're ultimately trying to achieve, which mm. is um, in that case for people to sleep better, right? <laughs> um, so yeah, I, look, I think that the the demand is going to continue to be there because it's, it's human. I think we've got a really... Um, a deeply ingrained desire to get more out of our short time on earth. I think yeah. that's, I think that's pretty generically um, true and motivating and, uh, and informs how we act as, as individuals. So the question is simply, how do you, how do you empower mm. uh, and add rather than subtract? And you've been doing this for seven years now. Do you think you've achieved what you've wanted to achieve so far? Or what, what are like the, the what's the number one thing you still have left on your to do thrive a bucket list yeah it's a long list <laughs> um, uh, honestly i think we're yeah. just i think we're just getting going i think the um mm. you know we've got a, a a huge amount of um of value still to still to add i think the number one thing that i um i, I think a huge amount about is the data mm. and there's a lot of stuff that has to happen to make that um, a really interesting uh, area to explore. Lots of the technology inside the infrastructure, the automation, the safety, and um, the regulatory permissions and changes. You know, there's a lot of stuff that has to make the data available or has to happen to make the data available. Um, but, but I think it's fascinating, right? For all the reasons that we mm. talked about. And um, we've just... Uh, brought on board a new uh, head of data who sort of comes out of a um, uh, or comes from a background where I think mm. um, uh, you know we're going to start getting into some of that. So yeah, haven't um, haven't really scratched the surface and uh, and excited about lots of things. But if you made me pick one, I'd pick data. <laughs>